the emphasis when I, when Christianity becomes moralism on me, and we forget that for the greater glory of God, we put the emphasis on the saving work of Jesus, and that changes everything. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another wonderful episode of Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined again with my co-host, Dave the Meat Eater Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? <laughs> I'm good, Dave the Meat Eater. The Meat Eater. That's the carnivore. The soul- Oh, only meat eater now. Only you. So this is for two. It's just been two weeks. Dave. Two weeks. Dave is a man given to extremes. Uh, yeah, I am. I am. It's so- I always tell people if I say someone's my best friend, it means I know them. <laughs> and if I don't like someone, it means I hate them. You know, like if I say I hate them, it's because I. I just. I kind of rubs me the wrong. Oh, way. that's so funny. You are a man of extremes. So you are. Uh, <laughs> tell us about your carnivore diet. What are you doing? Oh, okay. So, okay. So, no, I've been reading a lot about like ketogenic diets, right? Okay. And first of all, I'm embarrassed by it because there is um, like no one would believe that this is a real diet. Because if you look at like the the food that people eat on this, it's it like you would think like for sure you're going to die. And like I, rem- I said that to my wife, like there's no way like when I would watch Joe Rogan's stuff. Yeah. Be like he's definitely gonna die. There's no chance that someone could survive on this. <laughs> but anyways, I you know so I kind of like started reading about the ketogenic diet, which carnivore is a ketogenic diet, right? Any diet yeah. that like you Go are into fueled ketosis. by fats, yeah. right, right. But like I don't like the amount of of non animal fats that you have to get on a keto diet is like kind of daunting to me. Yeah. So then I saw Jordan Peterson, and I was like. And, you know, I, I love, like, working out and stuff like that. Right. And so, like, when I saw him, I was like, what the heck? Like, what is he doing? Like, this guy must be roiding up or something like that. Like, at his age, <laughs> he looks amazing, you know? And um, Where did you see him? Was he walking around shirtless in your neighborhood? What was no, going on? <laughs> no, no. Somebody on a weightlifting uh, website that I wa- look at posted a picture of him. Oh, that's and, so uh, funny. And a bunch of other guys, like Joe Rogan and those guys. Yeah. And that, so then I so then I got into it. So anyways, uh, like two I guess last Sunday or two Sundays ago, I can't remember exactly when, I, um, I I stopped eating carbs completely, and it was nerve it was nerve wracking because I mean like even like salads and stuff like that I haven't eaten. Okay, and now I know I'm gonna get emails. I know I will get emails <laughs> from avowed vegans and vegetarians, which I you know I like trust trust me. I my wife was a vegetarian. She was like a raw foodist at one point. Like I right. know about all this. But I can honestly say there were three days of hell. And after those three days, I I have never felt better. I cannot remember even a time in childhood when I felt like this. Like I <laughs> I've never felt better in my life. I love And I and I'm and I'm never hungry and I love the food. I love I just have this image of you walking around in each in each of your bear <laughs> claw hands with yeah, this like raw right. meat being with like, like two with like two two uh, turkey legs, like the two huge turkey, legs. <laughs> like you get at the Renaissance, or like fair. mutton, and I'm just like wiping my on my arm, <laughs> like, like I adopt like the oh, looks like meats back on the menu, boys. <laughs> well, well, do you know what's funny is that 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 is like it's it. So there are weird carnivores, yeah. Like there are weird people like what? that who are like really. You think a, a no, food no, cult well, like no, this? <laughs> no, well, I'm saying like that. Like there's one guy who I was listening to, and he was like, yeah, he's like I'm putting. I'm putting man back on the top of the food chain, you know, and it's like, okay, dude, calm down. Like that, that seems insane, right? He's like, I'm just like a lion out on the plate. So when I want to annoy my wife Amber, then I stay, I say stuff like that. And and then when she asks questions, I say, you know, the thing about carnivory is Amber, and she gets so mad. She's like, please do not say carnivory. That makes me so, so happy. The thing about Con- yeah. uh, those of us who belong to carnivory, <laughs> carnivory, uh, right? Gosh, that is awesome. That is so. You're, it's working for you. You're losing weight. You're feeling good about yeah. your life. Oh choices. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm losing weight like crazy, and um, just a bunch of other stuff. Like I have really bad Gas. arthritis in my hands oh. from <laughs> arthritis in my hands from uh, just all kinds of punishment I gave when I was younger, and I, I'm feeling a lot better with that. And um, 
you know, things like that. So I, I just feel a lot better. So anyways, well, I know I'm going to, awesome. I know I'm going to get emails. I know I am. <laughs> Email but Dave's right. mom. At- yeah, right. Right. <laughs> right. Nice. So you doing any traveling in this uh, crazy time? Yeah. Yeah. Come, come see me. I have a bunch of stuff coming up. Uh, take a look at the sinners I have a bunch of things coming up soon um, all over the country uh, missions and the Catholic truth about angels, demons, ghosts, exorcism, and hauntings. I have a bunch of those. Um, I actually am a little bit overbooked right now for the time in my life, but um, that that's only for about a month, and then um, then there'll be some some leeway there. Uh, but um, take a look the the sinnersguide.com. You'll see my calendar there, and I hope I hope I can see some of you guys out there. What about you? Do you You're, think Do you think I could show up dressed as you and just fill in some of your talks, and we'll do a fifty fifty split? Um. Well, I mean, I don't know. Hi, my name is Dave. Where's the bacon? Whoa, that was that was ad hominem for sure. That was straight ad hominem. (laughs) No, me. I I, I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited about tomorrow. There's a church here in the Houston Archdiocese. It's so funny. I do so little things in the Houston Archdiocese. Why am I always on a plane? Um, but I'm going to a parish, and I I do a a three day parish mission. Um, it's the closest thing I have to like a can talk. Um, it's called that one thing, and it just helps people. I love this mission. Into, yeah, it it's great and it works, and right. um, it just helps people repent. That's the whole point of it. But um, so I'm doing it as a one day uh, event called Heart of Worship. Cool. And they asked me, they're like, "Well, we want three keynotes from you." And I was at this church three, three keynotes. <laughs> yeah, three keynotes, and uh, I said, "Well, I have a three day parish mission." And I sent it to them, and uh, they said uh, uh, they were like, "Oh my gosh, this is this is the perfect content that we can use." Uh, I, you don't happen to have any small group questions with these, do you? And I go, "Well, well actually, see, I did this thing called uh, Radical Communities with Ascension Press, right. and some of them were based off of this. So here you go." And I just gave them all this stuff, and they're like, "This is amazing! Oh, this is great! Let's do this!" It's so, a conference in a box. Uh, it's a conference in a box. Oh gosh, man! You just made me feel so fake and uh, artificial. <laughs> I know. I I'm I'm worse than you are. I know you are. There are people in <laughs> Pittsburgh who could give my testimony. Literally. <laughs> what is it the the ghost talker that you do? Uh, you could set your watch to the jokes. Yeah, I could. I could like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. I I do have one problem though that has started to creep into my talks. You remember when I shared the the everyone wants to be known and loved, and I used the Taylor Swift. Yeah. Right. Okay, so I have used that so many times that I'm publishing these talks, and like in one weekend, I'll talk to middle school students about relationships and pornography, and I'll use that. And then the next day, I'm talking to adults about digital parenting and blah, 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 and I'll use that. (laughs) Within six talks, I used it five different times. That's awesome. And it was funny because I edited them all uh, yesterday morning. You can find them at soundcloud.com slash amdgomer. All free, about 250 talks. And I had to put them online. I'm like, well, there's another one. There's another one. And then I did a convalidation class last uh, two nights ago, and I used it again. <laughs> and I was like, I cannot get away from this. Right. And uh, I, maybe I shouldn't have to. Tay-Tay has stopped me a lot. Right. So, uh, I love it. Yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm traveling a lot. Um, I try. I'm looking at my schedule. I'm looking at my financial statement. I get scared. Then I look back at my schedule. Right, right. Um, but I think right now I have breathing room till August. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think I have I have gigs. I'm I'm fully booked. April is a little open, but other than that, August, I'm I'm booked solid, and I don't I'm I'm kind of scared to go any further than that. Right. I get it. So I get it. So yeah. hey uh, hey. So uh, where can people see your calendar? They uh, whoa! <laughs> I don't have one. On wow, uh, wow, that's weird. Well, because I, listen, Pat, why would anyone you listen to me? Yeah, you listen to me. <laughs> now it's because I try to be flexible and I panic all the time, so I don't block out dates like ahead of time for my family. Okay, so whenever people email me, it, it then becomes the dance. Of, right, right. Can you do it this weekend? Right. Can you do it that right. weekend? And uh, I have to balance it. The tricky thing is balancing it with RCIA. Okay, and so because um, there's so many weekend classes, and I teach most of my love teaching RCA, that I want to be able to be there as much as possible. But that's on Sundays, and a lot of people want me out at events on Sunday. So 
It's all it's all a balancing act. So I guess if people want to hear Gomer, they should just hope that he comes near them and they see a flyer. <laughs> so that's great, Gomer. Uh, great. I'm go- <laughs> oh. So today we are talking about <laughs> justification and all things like that. And it's it, this is I can't think of a more pertinent topic, but it's also kind of complicated. I mean, I don't think it'll be complicated with Gomer here because he can un, you know, break it down for us. But it's also kind of a complicated topic, and it's something that he and I have both been very passionate about like in the last two years. Um, just understanding the idea of justification and and what we mean is like you know how how God saves us, how we are saved, you know how this happens and and how we are justified, redeemed, saved, all these things. And I think for so many of us, we might not realize that we have like an inner dialogue going on about this, but we all have this inner dialogue going on about justification, salvation, redemption. Like how how does it happen for us and I know like for me, I mean, there's a million different ways to self-justify yourself. You know, there's a million different ways. Americans can say like, well, everyone's going to heaven. That's a way of self-justification. You could say uh, like, a, like a sort of universalism. You could say, well, you work your way to heaven, which we're going to talk about all these. You know, that's like a way that to, to say that there's justification. I, I think for a lot for me, it kind of took the place of I have to make myself palatable to God, you know, and I know that there yep. was a time in my life when I was really struggling with mortal sin and, um, and uh, drinking in particular. And, you know, it was like one year of my life. And and actually, you know, it was when you and I were first kind of becoming friends um, that I was, I was about to say that that's yeah, right. we became friends. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We, we, we were. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't the case. Causation is not correlation there. Um, OK. I mean, correlation is not causation. Um <laughs> So, uh, you know, and what would happen is after about a year, I realized like how, how, how awful this was and how it was like really affecting my relationship with God and with my friends and things like that. And so I decided like, okay, I got to start confessing this in confession, you know, but what I would do is I was so embarrassed to confess it, especially in Steubenville (laughs) that, um, that what I would do is I would try to get distance from the sin before I confessed it. So like I would not go to confession if I if I got drunk one night, I wouldn't go the next day, but I might try to not get drunk for like a week so that then I could go to confession and say to the priest, hey, I, I took care of it. But a week ago, don't worry, I took care of things. You don't have to worry about this. But a week ago, I did get drunk. But now I've, I've been a week without that, you know, and that's just it's a classic move of self-justification, right? That this idea that you have to get further away from the sin before you that you have to try to make yourself palatable to God before you present yourself to him. It's just not possible, right? So this is kind of how I want to, you know, transition into our show today uh, as, you know, so many of you are going to find yourself in this show and I'm going to find myself and Gomer's going to find himself in this show because we all try to do this. So let's talk about justification. Gomer, why don't you, why don't you go crazy? with this yeah so the amazing thing about what dave just said is it so perfectly dovetails the the response that we have because for so many people when we think about our relationship from god we assume that it's all on us right number one right and that god is coming towards us with a fundamental disposition of being disappointed right like god like you're a sinner. And I, I think this is in a real way without being jokey. I think this is the origin of Catholic guilt for a lot of us that I know there's a God. I know he's all good and holy, whatever that means. I know I'm not all good and holy. Therefore there's a problem, right? I know about the natural law and the moral law and I got to be a good person. And I know that I'm a failure in it. I mean, C.S. Lewis says, you know, one of the first religious realizations is that there's a law that I didn't create and number two is, and I break it all the time. Right. But the reality is the next step matters. And the next step for most people naturally is that my heavenly father must be disappointed in me. And what do you do if you feel like, honestly, like if you have a dad or a mom who is disappointed in you fundamentally, like you are a disappointment as a person, right? Right. right. What do you do? How do you relate to a dad or a mom like that? What? I mean, you would hate yourself. You would avoid them. You would do, or you know, there's. I came up with three responses. One is you're polite, but you avoid them, right? right. Like, right. Uh, you might send a birthday card and make a phone call and do the Thanksgiving visit, but it's a drudgery. It's painful because you don't want to feel like you're less than. Sure, right. But you avoid it, and when you walk out the door, you're like, oh, thank God, that's over. 
Um, other people might do what uh, you know. I've known people do this in the past. Uh, they'll they'll become a hostile rejector, right? Like you don't want me, fine. I, I don't, don't want, want you. you. Yep. Yeah, and it's a very big manifestation. <laughs> as my son is in the background waving. All right, buddy, you gotta shut the door. Shut the door. Okay. It's a very big manifestation of, um, of our pride, right? In a in a hostile way. But then the third one is a manifestation of our pride in almost like a passive-aggressive way, which is being good enough, right? which is what you were doing. Right. We all try, okay, so dad is disappointed with me, so I'm going to pivot and I'm going to do all the things I think dad wants me to do or mom wants me to do to earn back that approval. Right. And I think we take that very natural response, one of those three responses, and we project that onto God. Right. And when we project that onto God, that affects how we go about this thing called Christianity. And the dangerous thing is it reduces Christianity to a moralism. You're not good enough for God. You're not a good little boy or a good little girl. Therefore, get right with God and then come back. Right. And there are two things that kind of broke me and uh, of that mentality. One is Zacchaeus. Yeah. Zacchaeus was this chief tax collector which is huge you know and i don't have to go through this people listening you know tax collectors were despised not like they are today in our society they were traitors in every way shape or form i mean it's not just like oh, people taking my money they were traitors right they they got rich off of roman soldiers enforcing taxes and this guy was a chief tax collector and no one made room for him to see jesus coming into town so he shimmied up a tree and Jesus walked right up to him, and he said, make haste, Zacchaeus. And then, after encountering Christ, they go into his house, and then Zacchaeus, this rich man, says, I'll give away half my possessions to the poor, and um, if I've stolen, I'll make fourfold restitution. Well, fourfold restitution was not required by the law. Right. The law only required a, a twofold restitution. And so here he is going way above and beyond because that's what happens when you encounter Christ. The grace overwhelms you and you respond generously. generously. Right, right. Yeah, and I, so then when you look at Catholics, so often we want this moralistic do and don't. What is the minimum I have to do? And, you know, how do I, how do I get into purgatory? I always tell people, if you're aiming for purgatory, you're going to fall a lot lower than that. Um and you can't get back up from that one. But so you start to look at these schemes of what I call schemes of self-justification. And it wasn't until I actually I was studying the liturgy in the catechism and I came across a sweet quote from St. Thomas Aquinas where he basically says the liturgy unfolds or the sacraments give us um, the paschal mystery of Christ. So right. in the sacraments, they, you know, they demonstrate what went before, namely his death and resurrection. They communicate the result of that, namely grace into our hearts, and they prefigure what awaits us, namely the glory of the age to come. And I started to look at that, and it changed how I teach. It changed everything because there in the center of the liturgy and the sacraments was a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas saying, you know what you get every time you come to a sacrament? Christ crucified and Christ risen. And I realized every single thing in the Catholic life is tied to that moment, the Paschal mystery. Just like everything in the Jewish world was tied to the Paschal, uh, the, the Paschal sacrifice right. of the lamb and the Passover meal, their self-identity came from the Exodus moment. And for us to ignore that or to just be like, yeah, Jesus died, Good Friday, I'll think about it then, on Passion Sunday when we have the 45-minute gospel reading, um, I, the the thing that we start to do is we start to put the emphasis when, it, when Christianity becomes moralism on me, right? and we forget that for the greater glory of God, we put the emphasis on the saving work of Jesus, and that changes everything. It, it literally changes your entire perspective to Catholicism because you start to realize why why a priest as mediator is not a barrier to God. Why a you know all these like why you can go to confession to a man, right? A priest instead of having to confess your sins just directly to God. It you start to understand all of this because of the great mediator who is Christ and and I think like you know what you said in the beginning about how if you think God is mad at you um it changes exactly how you relate to him. And and to be honest with you, um, 
it's unfair. It's an unfair bias that Catholics get this idea that like, oh, well, it's the church of no, and you're naughty, and God wants... Because, I mean, if you think about the... The Easter Vigil, it almost begins, you know, with the exalted where he, you know, they sing, oh, happy fault, oh, necessary sin of Adam. It's like, this is what sets up the great love story, right? Working yeah. for working for God to love you is a sick and twisted way to look at it. The greatest love story is that while we were still sinners, God loved yeah. us, you know. Yeah, and Bishop Barron uses the phrase mercenary love, you know, Ooh, quid, cool. pro, quid pro quo. Yeah, yeah. What do you want from me so that I get what exactly. I want? Right. And so when you start to break down, right, the polite avoider, these are the people who are priesters, right? They come, they do the polite thing towards their Catholic faith, but they hold God at a respectful arm's length, which for our God is the most disrespectful thing you can do. Right. Because he doesn't want to be at arm's length. Right. And the realization is... Um, we we often try to make God in our own image and likeness. You know, there was that phrase, uh, God made us in his own image and likeness, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. Yeah. I think that's really powerful because that's the, the there's an origin story there of our feeling unworthy in the presence of the all-holy one, and so we respond by schemes of self-justification. So um, last Sunday, I sat down with my Life Teen youth group at my church, and I was a guest speaker. And I really wanted to communicate to them, what do we mean when we say that Christ justifies us? That Christ's death and resurrection, the passion of Christ, the Paschal mystery, is what justifies us, not me being a good little boy or girl. And, uh, you know, to, to put it, you know, kind of more systematic in its theology, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ applied to me by the grace of the Holy Spirit that enables me to be good in any way, shape, or form. Even my good works are prepared beforehand through Christ Jesus. So wait, can we also start, say, can we say, like, yeah. just for the lay person, right? The person who is having a hard time, like in the economic trinity, right? It It's Christ who faces the Father in the correct way, and we stand with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we're trying to do, is we're trying to relate to the Father the way the Father wants to relate to us. And the only way to do that is to stand with our brother Christ, and we are able to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and the the Holy Spirit is the bond that unites the Father to Son for all eternity, and Jesus died and rose so that that Holy Spirit could bond us, us to God for all eternity. Like, that's incredible. Yeah. That is incredible. Right. The annihilation of our sin, right, and the communication of God's righteousness is what we need to live in that world. So I sit down with the teenagers. Uh, I keep saying sit down. I actually paced furiously across the stage, desperate to make jokes. Um, <laughs> but when we talk about uh, the polite avoider, the hostile rejecter, and then the good enough earner, I always tell people the worst is the good enough earner. Yeah, I, the I worst think so is the good enough earner because we've deceived not just ourselves, we've deceived ourselves about who God is. Yep. We've lied about our Father. He's a Father. He's a Father. He's not an upset boss. He's your Father, and He loves you. So the next story, obviously, the prodigal son. He's waiting for you to return, but He won't force you. And so when we start to look at it from this perspective, I came up with. Uh, what I thought teenagers would uh, be more hesitant towards when it came to accepting the church's teaching that there is no salvation outside of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the union of God and man. Heaven is union with God for all eternity. And if Jesus is that union, you don't get that union outside of Jesus. Right. <clears throat> and so I came up with this. So, okay, let's say that there is no justification by grace alone. What do we mean by that? We mean that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what justifies us because it opens to us heaven by giving us divine grace. Now, this is important for all of us to understand. If it's not by grace, then you have to earn it. If you have to earn it, here's some of the bad things that come from self-justification, right? Either you're justified by Christ or you're justified by self-justification. Number one, the thing is uh, you're going to rely on getting more will willpower, but what if your will is horrible? What if you're a horrible person? What if you're a jerk? What if you're mean? What if you're rude? What if you don't have patience? More willpower is awful in the hands of those with a bent will. <laughs> so right. it's like, yay, look at this. I have Now I, I have a bad will, but I'm really strong-willed. Right. That is a terrible, terrible mixture. Um, 
And then the next one is, if we are solely saved by what we do, what about those who don't do well? What about the men that I meet in the prisons, right, who have lived a truly terrible life, and now their whole circumstances have completely changed, they're in prison, and they have some distance between their horrible upbringing and the life that, or, you know, the life they should have led, and now they want... They, they hate the fact that they've done this, but they're 50, 60. I met a guy who had a conversion at 72 years old. What does he do? If it's really all about do, how many good works now do they have right, to do right. in order to earn their way? Absolutely. What about deathbed repentance? There's no place. See, this is the thing that people think. They're like, oh, well, if I'm just a good person, I get to go to heaven. And it says, well, for how long? How much? What, who decides what is good enough for being justified? Right. Do you? Because when I talk to teenagers, I say, do you think you're a good person? And they'll say, yeah. I mean, like, it's not like I murdered someone. You know, it's not like, and right. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah. And they'll be like, yeah, That's I'm not That's a great Hitler. line to write. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you're not Hitler. So hell is just filled with Hitler. That's another line I use all the time. Yeah. Um, but here's the, here's the other thing. Okay. So number one, what do you do with a past of bad? Um, number two, if we're solely saved by our own actions, then good people are right to be arrogant, judgmental, and proud. Right, because they're the ones doing it. They're not like the rest of us. Right, you think of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the um, in the temple. Jesus tells a story where the Pharisee's like, oh, Lord God, I am so happy I'm not like this tax right. collector. I right. tithe and fast. And the tax collector just beat his breast, didn't even lift his eyes up. Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. Right, but the idea is, the Pharisee would be right if we are justified by our works right. alone. Right. Because then that means that to he's the good person. He's done all the right things. He should be proud of himself. In fact, that's what Aristotle says. Right. The 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 truly virtuous man minimizes his dependence on others and maximizes others' dependence on him. We call it the uh the the direct translation is the high-souled man, magnanimity. Um but in Aristotle, you know, one way you could translate that is the prideful man. Yeah, Aristotle had no place for humility in his, in, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Right, right. Ambition was good for him, and all that kind of stuff. And, and right. the idea of uh, it was really Saint Thomas Aquinas taking Aristotle in, and he composed a prayer. And in the prayer, he overthrew all of Aristotelianism from a Christian perspective, where he said, "May I?" Uh, he's praying for the grace of liberality to give to those who need and the grace of humility to ask of others when I'm in need, right? And he's a mendicant. He's a begging friar. And to have that line from someone who's a, you know the greatest Aristotelian commentator in the history of the universe, that's a pretty big deal. And so for people who are good people, right, if, that's, if they've done enough good deeds, they have every right to be judgmental. They have every right to be proud and arrogant and all this stuff. But here's the funny thing. Doesn't that undo them being good, <laughs> them being judgmental and proud right. and arrogant? Absolutely. For us, it does. The, but yeah. in their eyes, everyone else is a failure. If you're not like right. me, everyone right. else is a failure. Right. And I think, I, like, can you, you know, we can see that so clearly in the story of the tax collector and, and the Pharisee, but, like, you see that every single day in Catholicism. There are people like that every single day in Catholicism. And, like uh like somebody it, it's very easy to be hyper religious and to think that anyone that doesn't meet your hyper religiosity is you know well yeah. that's a sinner yeah and, you know? and i mean and it, I, it happens I would also all the time. say it happens in people i whenever i talk with youth i always say this i go have you ever met christians who are jerks and they're like yeah like they can't wait they hate a religious hypocrisy right they're so yeah. excited and right. uh, yeah yeah but and i'm like okay now how did they get that way maybe in, in some people's lives, and I've known people that this is definitely the path they take, they started off rough, right? And God, through faith and through changing their lives and having a conversion and you know trying to get their act together and all this stuff, just as a response to God's grace, they broke away from bad habits, drinking, gambling, carousing, and the like, and they changed their life. But then something happens that after years of doing it, this is why you always have to be vigilant, after years of doing the right thing, Sometimes there gets this arrogance that creeps in that says, look at what I've done. I've come a long way, baby. And oh, then yeah. they, oh, yeah. right. I, I had that. Absolutely. I had that for years. And then you look at people who, who yeah. call themselves Catholic or Christian and they're, and they're still struggling with the sins that you struggled with. And you're like, come on, 
Come on. And you feel a twinge of pride. Do you, do you know? Do you know? Do you know what you're saying is? It's so funny. You know, I started with that story at the beginning where I, I, and I remember telling you this that I wasn't going to drink for a whole year. Yeah. Do you remember this? Yeah. So I would go to confession every week, and uh, and it, towards the end of that year, I was real excited to tell the priest. His name is Father Tuttle. Oh. Like Father Tuttle, it's been a year. I haven't I haven't had a drink in a year. I haven't been drunk in a year. You know, and. So I, you know, crowded into a car with a bunch of Franciscan guys. And do you know, like, this is so awful. It's almost embarrassing to even admit. On the way there, someone's name came up who was like a well-known person on campus. And I did not (laughs) like this person. And I just maligned their character completely, like just destroyed them. Like, okay, like, like verbally, like out loud. Okay. And I remember like a light going off in my head, like, Oh my gosh. Like I was so excited to pat myself on the back in confession because <laughs> I haven't had a drink in a year. And then sure enough, you know, this is what, this is what I'm like, you know, it's like just corruption inside, but, but it, it, it happens all the time. Yeah. And this is part of uprooting the idols of our heart, right? Is different ages, different stages of growth in the Christian life. We develop new idols that we have to bring the cross to and overthrow right. them. But flowing directly from this, so if you are a good enough person, whatever the heck that means, if you're a good person, it would be overwhelming temptation to be prideful and arrogant, and we see this happen all the time. So then kind of flowing from this is the creation of us versus them. And this is huge for me, and I got this uh, insight or whatever, uh, this idea, when I was reading... St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, and he talked about, he was talking about Jew and Gentile, and he said, in Christ's body of flesh, he destroyed the dividing walls of hostility that separated the two. And where there was now, where there was then two, there is now one in Christ Jesus. And I started thinking about that, and I was like, because of the death of Christ on the cross, the two have now become one in him. And I thought, wow, that is fascinating. And then I was meditating uh, before I gave a talk at the at Franciscan University for their young adult conference held on campus. It was so uncomfortable to sit in a room with 2,000 theology majors and give a cross talk. You know, you're like, okay, I'm yeah. going to tell you to accept right. Jesus. But a, as the day unfolded, right. you realize that everything was pointing to that moment because you have, and for those of you who don't know, I love Franciscan for, and I belong to both camps rigorously. You have the rad trads and you have the charismatics. And <clears throat> when they would do like praise and worship, people would come and sit in the front row because they're excited about the speakers. But then they would cross their arms over their chest, you know, and in, in an act of <laughs> defiance. And it wasn't even the liturgy, it was just praise and worship. And so it was so funny because this had become a rift in the university. And this is this is probably about five years ago. And as I'm going, I'm praying about this stuff. As I'm going, I'm praying about this stuff, and I realize that I would say these are projects or games of self-justification. I am creating an us versus them so that I know I'm on the the us, us side. I have all the right beliefs, all the right behaviors, and I reject those who are on the them side. And I characterize that and caricaturize that however I want so that I can feel justified. And I create the us's so, or I create the them's so that I can feel like I'm the right one. I'm on the right side. And the amazing thing is when I start to tell that to the teenagers the other night, you could see their eyes light up because they realized they had done that too. But even more than that, even more powerful than a guilt trip for doing it, they've been them. No one wants to be them. Right. No one wants to be on the outside looking in. No one wants to be made to feel less than. And they've done it, and they've had it done to them. And then I said, see, right there, right there, this is the point. No one wants to be there anymore. But if it's all done by your works, then we necessarily create these schemes of self-justification. You have to. We have nothing left. Of course. I I think, you know, just to, like, bring this back to, like, our main topic from, from the beginning of evangelization, this is how... You have to have this understanding, right? You're never going to have a heart for a hardened sinner 
until you realize there is no there is no uh, self justification, right? Until you realize you did not work to where you didn't get yourself where you where you are now. I, I think like um, you know the classic phrase there, but for the grace of God go I, is so important for the evangelists. Um, and, and there, I mean, there are people who I've worked with in in evangelization who you know, people from the community of same, same sex attraction and things like that, that their lives would literally horrify you. They would liter the moral life would literally horrify you. And if you have this attitude that is so present in the church of like, well, just stop doing what you're doing. Like just stop being a sinner. It's very difficult to relate to someone and ever reach their heart because you think, well, I did it. I just stopped being a sinner. Baloney. It's what God accomplishes in you. No one just stops on their own will or by some like, um, I don't know, what, uh, you know, philosophy or, or just like a natural virtue. It's not it's not that way. You know, that's not how we. Yeah, get Pope saved. Benedict, I can't remember what which gospel or which excuse me, which book it was where he said that you can detect a shift in the rabbis right before the coming of Christ in the way that they viewed God's justification of them through the covenants with Moses. He said, um you know, in the past, they were called the chosen people because God chose them uniquely out of all the people of the face of the earth. He said, but then the theology evolved right. to, there, there's literally where the rabbis would say, God presented the Torah to all the peoples of humanity and only the Israelites and they chose got, it, right? <laughs> right? And so that's why, yeah. and he says, and you right. see that creep in by the time Christ comes. And so... Um, the next thing that flows from the us versus them that I think is important um, is this notion of the comparison trap. And I say this because especially teenagers and young adults are suffering from anxiety and depression at kind of unheard of levels. And there's a lot of reasons for that. They're not all carnivores. Um, if they were, it would be gone. But uh, <laughs> no, the, there, what do I mean by the comparison trap? I love this one guy, Andy Stanley, called it the land of Ur. You know, like you are for Abraham, but he called it ER. They're thinner, faster, right. stronger, richer. And right. the comparison trap works when it comes to justification because or these games of self justification. Because what you're basically saying is I'm, I'm better, better than, that than that guy. But what are the standards? Yep. Well, it's the standards that you're already good at. I know. Right? Like I'm better than that. Right. Like you got your right. drinking act together, <laughs> but maybe you weren't, you know, uh, or you had this other thing yeah. you know, put together. I'm not. I'm not Osama you're not bin Hitler. Laden. So you're I, not I, so Hitler. I'm okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but so right. we come up with this. But this is what we do. This is the dark side of this. So first of all, we can create artificial comparisons, and we go about and we pick the criteria. We don't even know that we're doing this. It's all very subconscious most of the time. But we pick the criteria that we already kind of sort of excel at. And we kind of sort of look at people who don't excel at that. So you get your finances in order. You look at people who are terrible with money. You roll oh, your totally. eyes. You look totally. at you get your gym yeah. game on. You're wearing your your gym shark. Uh, you don't I, even I don't know, know what this I, is. You don't you're, even you're know the what's happening with the soccer's <laughs> and the kicking and the kicking and the screaming. No, and so, you got know, way out of your well, you got there. you got your gear you're getting your gym game on you're getting your fitness in track and then you roll your eyes at people who just can't seem to get out of bed <laughs> in the morning and go to the gym at 4 30 or whatever it might be right we create these comparison traps when we feel good we select the criteria that is closest to us and then we put people on blast who aren't there right who aren't at our quote-unquote level but the other thing is true on the dark side of it when you struggle with depression and anxiety and paranoia and bipolar, right? You know what you do? You look around and you find evidence of why you're unworthy, why you're worse. Right. And this happens so often. And in fact, it couldn't have been more starkly presented to me my last year as a youth minister uh, at my current parish um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Oh, man. Almost 15 years ago. <laughs> I'm so old. Um, but the guy, um, this one woman who I was working with, she wrote in, um, she wrote me this beautiful letter. I was a confirmation sponsor. She writes this beautiful letter. And she said, you know, I finally understand what you're talking about. Like Christ suffers with me. And she had struggled with hardcore clinical multi-year depression. And uh, she said, I do love Jesus, but I don't think I'll ever be as good as so-and-so. And she referenced this right. girl, which was so funny. Of all the people in our youth group to reference, 
she referenced the one girl who super devout, super faithful, loved our Lord. I met with her on Tuesdays and the girl that wrote the letter on Thursdays because this girl felt worthless, friendless, abandoned. And for the fact that the depressed young woman who I was her sponsor would reference the other woman who is, though she is pretty and smiley and not struggling with clinical depression, she felt like she was in such a dark place that no one loved her, all this stuff. I was like, see, when you're depressed, you you don't even know the truth. And this is the same thing if you're feeling good. You just look at externals and make your judgments. And the dangerous thing is... Your uh, the comparison traps as in terms of schemes of self justification ratify your decision. And the sad thing is, when you're depressed, it's I'm alone, I'm the worst, right? There's there you know everyone is better than me, and you you create this thing where you now double down your self condemnation, right? And that yeah. both of these areas take extreme healing. One is more confrontational maybe than the other, but this is what schemes of self-justification do. So if you struggle with anxiety and depression, chances are you might rate yourself as having less worth because you're looking at all the happy people, quote unquote, and you're not there. And so you must think, oh, well, I'm terrible. I'm the worst, you know, whatever. And all of these things are combated if we let Christ be the answer. If we let him justify us, we don't need more willpower. We need the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to be poured into our hearts through baptism, right? We need the death and resurrection of Jesus to justify us. That means you and I, because we're not saved solely by what we do, we can have deathbed conversions. We can let the blood of Jesus Christ overcome the sins of the past. We can stop calling ourselves good people. There's no one but good but God. There's no one good but God alone. And we can let Jesus be the one who justifies us. We can put away all this us versus them crap and nonsense and start realizing everyone is a potential brother and sister, not us versus them, because Christ destroyed these dividing walls of hostility in his very body of flesh. And then we can get rid of the comparison trap, right? The only person you need to compare yourself to is Jesus Christ. And that comparison, you're always going to come up short. It's it's, it's a rough go. Yeah, that's a a rough rough comparison. And so by doing that, we enable ourselves. Number one, we're set free from uh, thinking that we always have to be perfect to earn our Heavenly Father's approval because we realize our Heavenly Father approves of us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what I think we lose sight of, right? Going all the way back to the beginning. If my Father is fundamentally disappointed with me, I got to earn back his love. But the problem is, it's not that he's fundamentally disappointed in you. It's that he loves you and you're lying to yourself about it. Right? Right. Right. He, it, it literally yeah. is from the beginning, right? When they're hiding from God, I can't let him see me like this. I can't let him see me like this. Like, what a joke, you know? Um, when, when really he's the only remedy for what we need, you know, he's the only remedy that we should run to him. Anytime. In any aspect of the Christian life, you feel like you're playing some kind of a chess game with God, yeah. there's something wrong. You need to start thinking about the way that you see God, the way you see others, and the way you see yourself. If you're trying to, in any way, strategize your relationship with God, it starts to get a little bit strange there. And I think, you know, um, taking all this and listening to Gomer talk about this, it's like as as an evangelist, um, you, you just want to run to these people. You want to run desperately to these people who have the, the, the wrong view, the self-justification, wrong views, and all these consequences. Because, um, like he said, it takes a lot of healing, a lot of change, a lot of paradigm shifts in a person's life so that they can finally feel the love of God, the Father, that tra- that will transform their life completely and continue yeah, to transform. So I wanted to run through this quick checklist of things that I just came up while we were talking. If Christ is the one who justifies us, I don't have to be perfect to have dignity. Christ gives me that dignity. I can, Boom. deathbed confessions or life-altering conversions can actually occur. The past doesn't have to own me, and I can receive forgiveness. And they're not right. unjust. My failures and my mistakes do not ultimately define me. We are all together in the company of sinners, and I'm not exempt from that. We are freed from the comparison trap and games of self-justification when we let Christ be the Savior of our souls. 
And it's okay to admit that we all are the walking wounded because it's precisely why Christ died on the cross by his stripes. We are healed by his wounds. We are made whole. We can be wounded and admit our wounds and go to the divine physician. And if Christ is actually your dignity and your self-worth, he's your meaning and your hope, only in Christ can you discover who you truly are. Because he is the only one that's so fully alive that he can actually, uh, by imitating and conforming yourself to him, you lose nothing of who you truly are. You become who you truly are. And so we're going to take a brief break right now. And we're going to come back. The fine folks at Ascension Press um, want you to uh, hear this commercial message, and we do too because we love them. Uh, but also, I want you to text EKSB at 33777. Hop on our mailing list. We need to know who you are. Um, once we get some of this dust settled from all these um, plans that we have right now, um, we want to be able to keep in touch with you and to keep this going. I have another interview with Dr. Um, Dr. Italy himself, Marcelino D'Ambrosio. And uh, really excited about that one, about his new book, Jesus, the Way of the Truth and the Life. So stay posted, stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. Two thousand years ago, Jesus Christ chose corrupt, broken, imperfect sinful men to be the foundation of his church and because these broken imperfect men chose to remain in relationship with jesus they became saints and they were used by jesus to transform hearts and minds two thousand years later i invite you to check out my book broken and blessed where you'll find practical tools to overcome habitual sin to have a personal relationship with jesus christ and to walk with an imperfect church toward a perfect God who is calling all of us to perfection over time. To order the paperback book or audiobook, Broken and Blessed, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to do something different. You know, oftentimes we do the five practical takeaways. What I wanted to do is tell how a woman had a practical, life-changing takeaway when she heard this message. So this all comes from the very first parish mission I've ever led. My deacon, good deacon Tom McNair, came to me and said, I want you to lead our parish mission for our own parish this year. And so I did. And uh, I was freaking out because I couldn't come up with the first night. I got the second and third done, didn't know how to start it off. And I started it off eventually what you heard today. How do we relate to God the Father? Is our Father disappointed? And how do we relate if we think that is? And I talked about the good enough earner. And I didn't know this, but three months later, there was a woman who came that I've met several times, wonderful woman. She was in the cry room while I was giving the talk. And she broke down sobbing hysterically while I was talking. And as I was talking about the notion of um, being a good enough earner, I was just throwing out worldly examples. You know, if you feel like your dad doesn't love you, what are you going to do? You're going to maybe go to the college that your dad wants you to go to instead of what you want to do. Make a major that he wants you. You're trying to earn his approval. Marry someone. You know, name your kids' names that he wants, maybe not what you want. Uh, live in a house that they want. And I just started throwing out these random examples. No, the power of the Holy Spirit was there because these weren't random examples. It was her life. It was her life story. And not to give too much away, but she sat down in my office and she said, you were telling me the central part of my life. I have a younger sister. My father loves her. He does not love me. I'm the eldest. I have done everything in my life to win him back. And she said, and when you stood there and talked about that's not how God the Father relates to me, I struggled so much because that's how my earthly father relates to me. So she begins telling me that she went to the college he went to. She majored in his major. Um, she had a kid out of wedlock. Whoa. And he then was like, oh, now you'll never finish college. So now she's a newborn mom. A newborn mom. She's a mom with a newborn <laughs> uh, and, and a full-time student. She crushes school, marries the father, 
you know, all this stuff. And every little thing, he would just make these biting comments. He never really congratulated her for her wedding, um, never was there for, you know, for graduation. Her sister finishes school. He throws a party for her, right? So this woman is doing everything she can. So then she, my friend, goes back to school and majors in what her sister Oh, my gosh. In. So now she's a full-time mom, newlywed, full-time employee, and a full-time student taking night classes, all to earn his love. She bought her parents' house because he wanted her to. It was too much house. They didn't have enough money. It produced a huge strain on their marriage. All of these problems were happening, and she's like, why doesn't he love me? I said, I don't know. I think he does, but I don't know. I said, but I will tell you this. Cast down your idols. Right. She said, what? I said, you gotta, you got to stop living for his love and live for God the Father's love. So what happens? She goes, and uh, she comes back to me three months later. I said, how's it going? And she says, terrible. It's terrible. You have ruined everything. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. I need an adult. Right? I fully panic. What do you mean? And she says, I told him, like, or I, I stopped doing all these things just to make him happy. We're looking to move. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. He's angry at me he's like every time we see each other he's just yelling at me all the time she's like why is that i said because idols are used to being served right i said you have to realize your heavenly father is going to fully take the place of your earthly father like you have to say god your love is enough i'm i'm gonna stop worshiping the the goal of attaining his love she's like okay okay and so we talked about all that stuff she comes back six months later. I said, how's it going? A little nervous to even ask. She says, amazing, amazing. I said, okay, what happened? And she said, I couldn't take it anymore, so I confronted my dad. And he's like, yeah, what has been the matter with you these last few months? And she said, Mike, I'm going to tell you the truth. She said, I never would have said what I said to him unless I had given my heart over to God. She said, because once he became my father and I stopped chasing after being good enough for my earthly father, then I could actually tell my earthly father the truth. And I said, Dad, you don't love me. You love my sister. And you rub it in my face all the time. And she goes through and lays out all these examples. You know what he did? He got down on his knees and he cried. And he said to her, Whoa. I never knew I was doing that to you. Whoa. He said, your sister is not as strong as you. She can't do the stuff that you do. So I have to like baby her to get her across the finish line. He's like, but you're, so, he's like, I had no idea I could do it. So she said, once she got God the father as her father, she was able to speak the truth to her earthly father and she won him back. And th she's like, the house is done. All this stuff is done. I'm having a normal career. Like all this Whoa. stuff totally changed her life that's the practical takeaway is when you realize that god really is your father a whole host of things can begin to change that's awesome i love it yeah so ladies and gentlemen take a look at this and and look at your own life you know take a look over the next week and see the way that you view god we're th so thankful that you uh tune in every week and uh again we always want to hear from you our goal is to create an army of evangelists who listen to Every knee shall bow and go out, and then we come back and support each other. So contact us anytime. This has been Every Knee Shall Bow. Dave Van Vickle, and God bless you all. Go. Y'all say classy. <laughs> and eat meat. <laughs>